0: First Thessalonians 2:17 to3:13. Hear the word of the Lord. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. When there is geographical distance, for whatever reason, between two parties in a close relationship, maybe girlfriend, boyfriend, or close friends, or husband, wife, brothers, and sisters, we can get concerned about a couple of things, especially if there's not much communication going on. And we can ask two basic questions. The first question is, how are we? How are we? That is, how's our relationship? Because there's distance there, geographical distance, and so we wonder also if that geographical distance has brought into the relationship some, some relational distance, some social distance. So we might be a little insecure about how are we? And the other question that we ask, the other current concern that we have is, how are you? We want to know how the other person is. We know how we are, but how are you? So we're asking two questions. One is about the relationship. How is our relationship? Uh, in this in this distant situation. How are we? And then the other question is, I want to know about you too. How are you doing? Because we, we don't see each other. How, how are you? Now, uh, these two questions are the two questions that come up here in this text. The first question is that the missionaries are asking, the Thessalonians, how are we? How are things between us? And the other question is, how are you all doing? Now, uh, we have internet, we have texting, we have email, we have long-distance calling. We can resolve these things more quickly, but they didn't have those things. And so the geographical distance also, in many cases, meant silence for weeks or even months, and that, that provokes an even greater concern. Now, the missionaries start out here expressing something that they have expressed over and over in this letter, and that is, we really, really want to see you. Look at verse 17. We were torn away from you. And if you go back to chapter 17 of Acts and look at verse 10, you find that they were. You remember that they came into town, they settled in and Paul was engaged in some sort of a business there, a trade, and it was going quite well. They preached in the synagogue and and they had a good response. And then some of the leaders of the the Jewish synagogue, they, they stirred up the city and they got some some rabble-rousers from the marketplace, and they, they had something of a, a riot in the city, and then they grabbed Jason, who was a friend of Paul's, looked like maybe Jason, he was the, he was not maybe, he was the, the host of Paul and the missionaries, and, and they brought Jason in, and they had him give a deposit. We don't know what the arrangement was, but it looks something like this. Jason, we're going to keep your money. You get these guys out of town now, and don't let them come back. Uh, and, and so, Jason, we're counting on you to, to cause this, this, this riot to die down. And, and they did that. The brothers, the brothers got, got the missionaries out of town overnight. They disappeared overnight. Now, uh, there was no evidence, as I've mentioned, that the Thessalonians were critical of Paul and the missionaries for leaving. Rather, they were the ones who got them out of town. However, the missionaries just disappeared overnight. And they left some, some explaining to do. And it sounds like there were some rumors circulating about, oh, here comes some traveling charlatans taking advantage of you. And, and so they, they, were, they were concerned that maybe some of the Christians were, were beginning to believe some of these rumors. And so they're saying, how are we doing here? We, we really desire to see you. Look at verse 18. They express themselves in the, in, the, in the most tender of terms. Well, 17. We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, not in person or rather in person, but not in heart. That is physically, but, but not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. You getting the point? They wanted to see them. And then Paul says, I, Paul. So they're writing in the plural. And then I, Paul, again and again, he says, but Satan hindered us. Now, we don't know how Satan hindered them. It may have been that arrangement that they were banned from the city. We don't know. If that was the arrangement, how Satan hindered them, I'm sure there are many dissertations written about how Satan hindered them, but we don't know. It was something mysterious to us that they were not able to go back at that time. And so what do they say? We really, really want to see you. Why? Because we're concerned. And then they express on their part. They don't know how the Thessalonians are feeling, but they want to express their, their, their feelings towards the Thessalonians. And they say some of the most beautiful things in all of the New Testament about the believers. They say, you are our delight. And they pile up words to describe their delight. And they use a rhetorical question here in verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown Of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This is beautiful. We don't know how you're feeling towards us, but we want to express ourselves towards you. You are our hope, you are our joy, you are our crown of boasting, you are our glory. But notice when. What's the the time frame here? They say, you are our hope our joy, our crown of boasting, our glory, before our Lord Jesus at his coming, at his coming. So the reference here is future. And what they're saying is this, that when Jesus comes again, and we have to give an account for our lives and for our ministry, all we need to do is point to you and say, Lord Jesus, do you know what we've done with our lives? Do you know what we have done with our ministry? Look at the Thessalonian church and you will have the answer. And they were so confident that in that day it would go well with them and that they would be recognized as good and faithful servants because of what the Lord Jesus sees in the Thessalonian church. And by the way, the only two churches that Paul describes in this way is the Thessalonian church and right down the road, the Philippian church as well that special appreciation they had for those Macedonian churches. They were confident in them that in that day when they would stand before their Lord, they wouldn't need to say a word. They would only need to point and say, look at the Thessalonian church. That would be their joy, their crown of boasting, and their glory in that day. And I can say as a pastor that I have similar confidence because one day I will be called to give an account. In Hebrews it says that, that the leaders of the church will be called to give an account uh, for those who are, are under our ministries. And I, this really forced me to think about that day as I was preparing this week. And, and I have to say that I have a deep confidence in that day that I will be able to point to two exhibits. Exhibit A, Iglesia Cristo Redentor in Guadalajara, Mexico. Exhibit B, Florida Coast Church in Pompano Beach. And I am confident that in that day, when I am called to give an account, that I will be able to simply say, look at those two churches and evaluate me on the basis of what you see in those two churches. So let me say to you, Florida Coast Church, and if anybody's listening from from Iglesia Cristo Redentor, thank you. Thank you for giving me that hope. That joy in anticipation, that, that crown of boasting to have something to point to in that day. You are my hope. You are my joy. You are my crown of boasting. You are my anticipated glory in that day. That's, that's the first question. How are we? They're saying we want to see you so we know how our relationship is, but let us tell you on our part how we feel about you. You are our delight before the Lord, in anticipation of that great day. And then there's the second question in in chapter 3. And the question is, now how are you? How's your faith? How is your faith doing? And they say this twice. We couldn't stand it any longer. The separation from you, we couldn't bear it any longer. Verse 1, we couldn't bear it any longer. And so what did they do? It says, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And there's some some difficulty of trying to figure out who the we are. It looks like it's likely Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, were willing to be left at Athens, and then they sent Timothy back in. It says in verse 2, two and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel, back to you in Thessalonica. Now, why Timothy? Well, um, who was arrested in Philippi? Do you remember? It was Paul and Silas. They were the, the main ones. Timothy and Luke weren't arrested there. So uh, then we get to Thessalonica. Uh, it looks like the same, the same two were the, the ones that were the focus of the persecution, Paul and Silas. And so Timothy was, was kind of flying under the radar. He was still a young man. He was still an understudy here. He was a protege here and, and very, very recent missionary. He was also half Gentile. So he probably wouldn't have stuck out as much as these these two full Jews if they had gone back into town. But I want you to notice the confidence that that Paul and Silas have in Timothy. They say he is our brother, our our colleague, and he is God's co-worker. So he's not only our brother, he's God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. So he's getting quite an assignment here to go back in undercover and to do a couple of things. One is, in verse 2, to establish and exhort you in your faith. But he's also there to find out how they're doing to find out how their faith is because there's a concern here verse 3 that no one be moved by these afflictions what afflictions the afflictions that kept going the church was born in affliction and the church continued in affliction the the countrymen of the of the Thessalonians uh, Thessalonians were, were still against them that the church was still beleaguered still persecuted and he says we're concerned about your faith in the midst of these these afflictions but then he says we told you this was going to happen, and you, you yourselves know, knew that this was going to happen. Verse 3, no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we, we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So the gospel was born there in affliction. And he said, you're going to continue to be afflicted. We told you this from the beginning, and the Thessalonians would have known this. Why? Well, as soon as they came to faith, what did they suffer? Affliction. They have suffered opposition from, from their, their countrymen and women. And so they are just reminding them that this is not an unusual situation. Now, and I've said this a number of times when we read the New Testament, we who live in, in safety and in comfort, uh, it, it's, it's hard for us to enter into this because we haven't experienced this kind of thing. Maybe someday we will, but, but this is normal Christian living. You see this in the New Testament. This is normal Christian living, uh, affliction and opposition and persecution. And most Christians around the world, or many Christians around the world, don't need to be told this. They know this. They get up every day, and they experience this. And so this is normal. This is normal. For us, it, it, it's something that we kind of, we have our noses pressed up against the glass and we're looking at, at, at what normal Christianity looks like in much of the world and throughout history. But it says, you know this, you know this. But then in verse 5, for this reason when I, so he goes, now we see once again it goes from plural to singular. Here Paul is emphasizing when I could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith. And here's the fear. For fear, this is verse 5, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. They're afraid that, that these young Christians might have folded under such pressure. They were brand new in the faith. Weeks or months in the faith and, and, and such opposition for being Christians. And, and they were afraid. And it's interesting, it, it calls him the tempter here. He's already been called Satan. Satan satan hindered the missionaries and now he's called the tempter and it's interesting to note that the tempter often uses this tool in his toolbox to try to crush the faith of christians and that is opposition persecution and if we read church history uh, we find out that sometimes it backfires sometimes it backfires the more the church is persecuted the more the church grows there's that famous Section in in a church father, Tertullian, where he's saying, You know, you're tempting us. You're tempting us by persecuting us because the more you persecute us, the more we grow. And you're tempting us because we might think of this, I'm paraphrasing, think of this as a kind of a church growth method. The more you tempt us, the more we grow. I'm sorry, the more you persecute us, the more we grow. And we might get kind of used to this, this great growth. And so you're tempting us by, this, by helping us in this way. And, and he says that famous line about the, the, sea, uh, the blood of the martyrs is seed. And it's the seed that causes the church to grow. He says, uh, the more you cut us down like grass, the more, the more we grow up. And sometimes that happens. But other times the church is desolated. And in individual cases... Sometimes it's too much, and the Christians just, just throw in the towel, and they give it up. And they say, this, this is just too much. And you want evidence of that in, in the New Testament, read, read the letter to the Hebrews. The whole situation of the letter to the Hebrews was they had, they had been stalwart. They had, they had accepted the plundering of the, their possessions with joy, but it had gotten to a level when it was just too much, and they were tempted to throw in the towel. That's why the constant pleading throughout the letter of the Hebrews is don't go back. Don't turn aside. Don't give up your salvation. You're almost there. You just got a little, little while longer to persevere. And so sometimes it works. Sometimes it can crush Christians and crush their faith. And that, that's the fear here. They didn't have news. And so they wanted to know how the Christians were doing. So how were they doing? Well, we find out. The Timothy came back in verse 6, and here's the news report. What are the two questions? How are we? What's our relationship like? And how are you? And Timothy comes back with reports about both of those things. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news, the verb here is the normal use for evangelize. Uh, Timothy has evangelized us. And that means bringing good news. And it's an unusual use of that word. Usually it's a technical term meaning evangelize. But, but here they use that word uniquely here in, in, in all of Paul's writings. He has brought us the good news. And he has evangelized us of your what? Two things. Of your faith. How are you doing? Their faith is good. And your love. How are we doing? Good. Things are great. Fine. And reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Whew. It sounds kind of like boyfriend, girlfriend trying to figure out you know, how the relationship is. You know, here's how I'm feeling. Send a letter, send an email, send a text, and waiting and waiting and waiting, and see the speech bubble come up, and what's the answer going to be? I loved you too. I can't wait to see you. I miss you so much. What a relief. And that's how this feels here. They longed to see the missionaries just like the missionaries longed to see them. Their faith was intact and their love was intact as well. And then verse 7. Here's the, whew, what a relief. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And now verse 8. It's beautiful. It says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. That's how much the lives of the missionaries were bound up with the faith of their disciples in, Thessal- in Thessalonia or Thessalonica. That's how close that relationship was. That if the Thessalonians were not doing well, the missionaries were not doing well either. If the, the Thessalonians were doing well in their faith, the missionaries were saying, we are alive. We have life. This is, this, is how, this is how disciple makers feel when they make disciples. They're spiritual children, and parents can understand this, right? I heard an expression once in, about uh, parents being as happy as their unhappiest child. And, and we parents understand that, that, that everything can be going great in life. But if we have a child who is, is not doing well, then, then our, our lives are bound up with our children. If they're doing well, we can say we live. Our lives have meaning. Our lives have purpose. Our lives are whole. But when they're not doing well, we feel like we're, we're dying. We feel like there's something missing in us. And that's what they said here. As long as you are doing well, we are doing well. If you're standing fast, now we live. Parents can understand this, and pastors can understand this as well. Church leaders can understand this as well about our churches and about previous churches if we've had previous churches that we've pastored. This is, this is, this is how we feel. This is what keeps us up at night. We say, how is the church doing? If the church is doing well, I can sleep. If the church is not doing well, I toss and I turn. I'm concerned. After we left Guadalajara, we were there for, I think you know, we were there for 20 years in Guadalajara, started the church and saw it through all of its stages and then felt that it was time to leave and and leave room for all the people we would trained and get back here close to my parents. And. And we thought maybe we had one more, one more church plant in us. And, uh, and, and it looks like maybe we do. Uh, and uh, we, we left there. And they went through some really, really difficult times after we left, really difficult times. A couple periods when, when it looked like it was touch and go. And, and I have to say, I felt like I was dying. I felt like I was dying. I felt like if that church doesn't make it, i don't know if I can make it either that's how bound up our lives were with their lives and that's that's the feeling here and then they they pulled through it, and I got to be down there, as you know, a few weeks ago, and I got to be there in this this packed church with with all of these new families with a uh, a 60 or 70 year old woman getting baptized that day with new people coming to faith and and my my reaction as I stood before that church it was also near my birthday so they had all the the kids up there dozens of kids up there singing happy birthday and then this big cake and my experience was one of those experiences like I have had a few times in life of saying if I die right now I die a supremely happy man my experience was I live because they are doing well. Well, that's what the missionaries said here. That was the relief. And then they broke into another another rhetorical question. And here you see how they pile on, once again, the ideas in verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Now, that's an interesting pivot, isn't it? They say, we want to see you, but we realize that you're not complete yet. Yes, you're our hope, you're our joy, you're our crown of boasting, you're our glory in that day, but you're still new in the faith, and there's still some things lacking, and we want to help you with those things that are lacking. And this is an amazing pivot between the first part of the letter and the second part of the letter. The first part of the letter is, we want to see you. No, we really want to see you. We really want to see you. We, we keep trying to figure out how to see you. We really want to see you over and over and over. The second part of the letter is there's some things missing in your faith, and here they are. And so next week we'll start some of those things, some of the things that were missing in the, in the faith of the, the Thessalonians. But before that, before that transition, there's, there's, another, there's another section that's a transition, and that's in verse 11 to 13. And this is a, a kind of a wish prayer. So it, it says that this first part is being wrapped up. And now there's a prayer here. And what is that prayer? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, note that there's prayer directed to God the Father and to the Lord Jesus, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. That's the, that's the first part of the letter. We want to come to you. May God make that happen. And then, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And now he's he's previewing some of the, the, the themes he's going to talk about in the rest of the letter. What are they? Love for one another. The coming of the Lord Jesus, blamelessness in holiness, and the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. So now he's given us an index of what's coming. It's a beautiful prayer that sums up the first part and prepares us for the second part. I won't say much about those now because the rest of the letter is about these themes and we'll get to them when we get to them in the different sections. Paul summed up really what he said here. He summed up in in one line that he said to the the uh, the Corinthian church which is interesting because the Corinthian church that was a rocky relationship if there ever was one between missionary and church but he said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 3 you are in our hearts to die together and to live together you are in our hearts to die together and to live together not all Christians are apostles not all Christians are pastors and elders, but all Christians are called to make disciples. Not all Christians are parents, but all Christians are called to make disciples. And so we should think about this. Is there anyone in my life with whom I am so bound up that if they're not doing well, I'm not doing well? Apart from children and grandchildren, that's kind of a given Apart from close relatives, that's kind of a given. But are there other people, other Christians, in whom I have given so much of myself, invested so much of myself, that if they're not doing well, I feel like I'm dying? And if they're doing well, everything else can be going wrong, but I can say, I live. That's the joy and the sorrow and the risk making disciples. But that's the calling that all Christians have. Not just to tuck into our comfortable relationships, but to as the the missionary said, we were delighted not to give you just the gospel, we were delighted to give you our lives as well. And by giving other people our lives, what are we doing? We're taking a risk. What are they going to do with our lives if they have our lives in their hands? If they have our lives under their control? What are they going to do? That's a risky business. But that's the call of making disciples. Not only apostles and elders and pastors and parents. All Christians are, are called to do that. And so to have this experience, what do you need to do? You need to find someone or someones and give yourself to them. So that they can know Jesus. And so that they can grow up in Jesus. Toward that blamelessness. In holiness. And if you do that, you will know what it is to die with them, and you'll know what it is to live with them. This should not be surprising to us if we're Christians. What's the message of Christianity? It's twofold Jesus died for us, and now he lives for us. But there's another part of that, another preposition, and it's this. We died with Christ, and we live with Christ. And so the whole structure of Christianity is set up so that lives die together and lives live together. And so this should not be a surprise to us that that built into Christianity is this giving of ourselves so that our lives and other people's lives die together and live together. Why? Well, we have a Savior who loved us so much that he died for us, and we died with him. And a Savior that loves us so much that he lives for us, and he binds our life to him so much so that we live with him. And the good news is this. Our lives go as poorly, if I can say it that way, or as well as Jesus' life. Our lives are so bound up with His, if we're believers in Him, that they go as poorly or as well as Jesus'. Now, let me ask you how is Jesus' life right now? It is at God's right hand, it is indestructible. It is, it is lived before God's presence. It is victorious. And so our lives are bound up with his life, his indestructible life, his perfect life, his beautiful life. So believe in him and you will live as much as Jesus lives. And then take that life and give it to someone else so that your lives are bound up with others as well. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for Jesus, that he died for us, that he rose for us, that we died with him, that we live with him. And then you told us to pass that on, to die with others, to live with others, that our lives might be bound up with theirs. Father, we we pray that you would enable us as church and as individuals to give ourselves to others. Not all are apostles, not all are pastors, not all are elders and leaders and teachers, but those of us who believe in Jesus are Christians. Lord, I pray that we would have the the joy and and the risk of sorrow of giving our lives to others, not only the gospel, but also our lives, so that we live with them and we die with them, that our lives might be so bound with theirs reminding us of Jesus, the one in whom and with whom we are bound up in death and in life. We pray this in his name. Amen.